0: <laughs> Thank you, Roger. Um, my assigned topic was uh, things have been worse, haven't they? Um, so I, I, I sort of feel the need to apologize in advance uh, since I, I was supposed to be the ray of hope. Uh, and I somehow think that's, that's not quite going to happen. Um, and the, the setting I, I want to hark back to is a debate that I uh, managed to get myself in uh, late last spring um, about the topic of Medicare. Uh, The argument, to me, seems straightforward enough. Medicare is broke. Uh, That it is insufficiently funded to pay its current bills is the least of its problems. Medicare's unfunded future liabilities defy the brain's ability to assimilate. But let's try. Last year alone, the program added a staggering $1.8 trillion to its tab. Though this crater of new debt passed by nearly unnoticed, it actually outstripped by some $300 billion the latest annual deficit. That $1.5 trillion shortfall, the third in a row to top a trillion dollars, is best remembered for provoking a white-knuckle controversy this summer over the debt ceiling. That debacle, in turn convinced appraisers that American bonds, the gold standard ever since we deep six the gold standard, had ceased to merit their AAA rating. Medicare's total future liabilities are pegged by government bean counters at just under $25 trillion. That unfathomable sum is actually a gross underestimate. When the bookkeeping ledger domain is pierced, the accrued deficit actually spikes by another $10 trillion. If you're keeping score, this $35 trillion debt surpasses by a goodly sum the annual gross domestic product of the United States and the European Union combined. Medicare's accumulated liabilities work out to approximately $300,000 owed by every household in the United States. And mind you, that's just Medicare. We haven't even thought about the $21 trillion in unfunded Social Security liabilities. The figure grows by over a trillion dollars every year, reflecting the demographics of an aging population that lives longer and has produced fewer offspring to pay for it. When Franklin Roosevelt implemented Social Security, life expectancy was 60 years which was sort of convenient for a program whose benefits were triggered when one reached the age of 62. But now, as, uh, as someone observed earlier, we, we live uh, into our late 70s and our 80s. In any event, the $21 trillion debt figure is conservative. Using less optimistic projections, Kevin Williamson puts the combined liabilities of Medicare and Social Security at $106 trillion. But we'll stick with the $21 trillion number, which is the number that was reported earlier this year by USA Today, uh, which I think admirably ignored the smoke and mirrors that the government uses to minimize the figure. Um, at that rate, $21 trillion, uh, Social Security computes to about $184,000 in debt for every household in America. The accumulated debt from the U.S.'s annual spending is also headed in the same stratosphere and in short order. It's now $15 trillion a year and projected to hit $22 trillion within a decade. So that's about $130,000 per household and rising. Then there's the retirement and disability benefits Uncle Sam owes to its military and its civil service. Another $5.5 trillion in liabilities roughly $50,000 per household. Those are only the federal numbers, and note that I've left out Medicaid, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and a few other Whoppers. I've also sidesteped the uh, catastrophe that is state insolvency, which, within the next few years, will begin taking down the dominoes. Illinois, Michigan, California, and so on. But for now... Let's just stick with Gomorrah on the Potomac. (laughs) Uh, Even someone graduated from an American college with a social science degree can do basic addition, at least if he graduated as I did more than 30 years ago before calculus became calculus and colonial oppression. (laughs) The big ticket items I've given you come to more than $80 trillion in debt. According to the Federal Reserve, the total net worth of the United States is $70 trillion. The portion of American debt that we've covered is far more than our wealth. Indeed, it's 25% more than the combined GDP of every country on Earth. The tab for each household in America is about $700,000. And it's worth emphasizing that these figures are not static. Not only do they grow constantly, their rate of growth has rocketed in the last 10 years and exploded in the last three. In addition, and this goes to the point Michael Mossbacher made before, uh, because the United States is the world's biggest debtor, we need bear in mind that interest rates have been extraordinarily low and extraordinarily flat for several years. Were they to return to modern historical norms, Or were they to spike to, say, the 21.5% heights they hit during the first Carter presidency? Uh, Well, that really is beyond the mathematical abilities of a guy with a poli-sci degree, particularly one that was minted at the same place and around the same time as the guy who's currently serving out the second Carter presidency. (coughs) (laughs) To go back to the beginning... Uh, The the daunting numbers that I just went through convinced me that the argument on Medicare was straightforward. Uh, The entitlement state is hurtling toward collapse. And this one program, the greatest single driver of our crushing debt, is unsustainable even in the near term. So this past spring, I suggested that we simply end Medicare. To be clear... This was not a claim that government had no role to play in the healthcare sector that constitutes one-sixth of the American economy. Protecting the integrity of the healthcare marketplace from fraud is a vitally important function. Nor is it necessary to scrap the noble concept of a social safety net for the truly needy, honest, transparent, means-tested welfare. I was simply acknowledging the basic rule of economics and of life that what cannot happen will not happen. We just don't have the money. Medicare cannot be saved and remain Medicare. Not only is its funding structure implausible, not only are we unable as a practical matter to pay the astronomical debts already accrued, the fact is that the central flaw of Medicare is its management by the government. The half-century empirical record proves that the political enticement to sweeten the pot from voting blocks and back scratching industry groups, and then to resort to quality killing measures to cut the inevitable cost overruns is simply irresistible. As if to prove the point, confronted by runaway debt that's only slightly, that was only slightly less grim than what we have now, George W. Bush actually doubled down, adding a reckless new prescription drug entitlement. Just in time for the 2004 elections, Republicans ostentatiously showed that they could be just as compassionate as Democrats with other people's money. What they actually reaffirmed though is that an unaffordable government program cannot be saved if the principal cause of its unaffordability is government. For pointing out these facts in public, I was excoriated. From the left, for whom Medicare is what passes for religion rather than mathematics, this was no surprise. Truly dismaying, though, was the assault from the right. In essence, I had said nothing that every conservative and even every Republican moderate does not already know. Medicare reform is topical only because Medicare is already on life support. It will never be Medicare again. We are down to the charade of ending Medicare as we know it, as the saying goes, and arguing about what that ought to look like. Yet a well-known, widely admired former Bush administration official portrayed me as a tactical Neanderthal whose contentions, if widely embraced, would reduce conservatism to a fringe movement. Better, he suggested, that we follow Ronald Reagan. (laughs) Ronald Reagan? Yes, in the revisionist history that followed, gone was the notorious scourge of socialized medicine the Reagan whose 1961 grassroots crusade against Medicare had in fact delayed its enactment for several years. When it came to entitlements, the metastasizing edifice of FDR's second Bill of Rights, which fundamentally changes the Constitution's pact between the citizens and the state, Republican orthodoxy had adopted as its own the received wisdom of the Obama left. Reagan is now to to be remembered as a non-ideological pra- pragmatist who sagely came to terms with the New Deal and the Great Society. Now, why rehearse all this? After all, on today's menu, I'm supposed to be the non-decline guy. Uh, I'm supposed to be our brief surcease from decline, the speaker who assures the room that things have been worse from which we are to derive that having come through worse times and been the better for it, uh, the the future is sunny. And there is something to be said for that. Uh, The miracle that is the United States emerged against all odds and thanks to no small amount of divine providence. How could one say that things have not been worse when we came perilously close to losing our nation, our union, during a bloody civil war? When the leader whose faith in the American idea and whose perseverance in the imperative of saving the union was brutally murdered only a week after that war's end, plunging a raw people and their precarious peace into further grief and tumult. Nor, I know, do our friends in this room, perennially gathering on one or the other side of the Atlantic, need reminding of a considerably less friendly time, specifically the summer of 1814. It was then, of course, that British forces landed on the Chesapeake, stormed Washington, the White House, prompted cowardly flight by American troops who actually outnumbered the invasion force by eight to one, and turned President James Madison, author of our Constitution and among the most revered figures in our history, into a fugitive from his solemn office. Isn't it just a bit rich, a bit of self-absorbed presentism, to suggest that in the bumptious history of the United States things have never, ever been worse than they are in the age of Obama. Not Valley Forge, not Pearl Harbor, not Watergate or the humiliation of the retreat in defeat from Saigon, not the jihadist siege that culminated in the slaughter of 3,000 of our countrymen and the destruction of the Twin Towers on September 11, 2001. Well, at the risk of hyperbole and solipsism of the now, I am going to submit that while our circumstances have been worse, our prospects have never been bleaker. And before I get back to what that Medicare debate has to shed on all of that, I want to linger for a moment on those Twin Towers. Just a few days ago, not far from where we're gathered this morning, we marked the 10th 10th annual commemoration, I still have trouble calling it an anniversary, of the atrocities of 9-11, It came and went with little comment on the fact that, a decade later, the World Trade Center is still a construction site. The towers have never been rebuilt, and they won't be. In a different America, the one I would have sworn on September 12, 2001, I still lived in, we would have demanded that the majestic skyscrapers be re-erected with all due haste. They would have been different, perhaps, only in that they'd rise up slightly higher in a statement of defiance and of invincible determination. But that will not happen. Once, Americans built wonders like the Empire State Building in a matter of months. But 10 years going on 12 years later, the single more modest building that will attempt to fill those iconic footprints is still a work in progress. There's a very good chance that before the new Trade Center is ready, a giant Ground Zero mosque will be completed courtesy of the Cordoba Project, the namesake of the seat of the the caliphate that conquered Spain and ruled it for half a millennium. Meantime, our community organizer in chief is working feverishly to convert the annual observance from a day of national remembrance to a day of community service. The not so subtle theme is that we need to seek atonement, not victory. Victory being a word that seems anathema to the man former Ambassador John Bolton Bolton, aptly describes as our first post-American president. Our prospects have never been dimmer for two reasons. First, we are losing the American idea. From the White House to the Academy to the corporations to the media, it has become something to apologize, uh, apologize for, not something to aspire to. The American idea is our culture of liberty, our conceit that the key to human flourishing is the free individual, steeped in a tradition unapologetically built on Judeo-Christian principles of equality, justice, dignity, and sacrifice, flavored with a distinctly American confidence, optimism, and sense of adventure. The American idea is that the free individual, unleashed to pursue his highest interests, Served, not ruled by a government that ensures the common defense and the rule of law, can achieve his dreams, improve his lot, and in so doing create prosperity for his family, his community, his state, his country, and ultimately for the rest of the world as a producer and as an example. Our prospects have never been worse because the darkest chapters in our history have been about failing to live up to the American idea, holding it dear, but failing its stringent test. America recovered from its setbacks and emerged the better for them because the ideal gave us an inheritance from which to draw strength and a standard toward which to strive. In 2008, by an alarmingly comfortable margin, Americans chose to elect as their president a man who promised to fundamentally transform the United States. It was not throwaway rhetoric. Come of age in the fever swamps of the radical left, Barack Obama, in a 2001 interview that was given little attention during the campaign, had rebuked the famously left-leaning Warren Court. Sure, they had shown courage in expanding criminal rights and privacy rights like abortion, he said, but they had flinched when it came to what he called the issues of redistribution I'm sorry, redistribution of wealth and of more basic issues such as political and economic justice in society. They had failed, he elaborated, and this is a quote, to break free from the essential constraints that were placed by the founding fathers in the Constitution. They clung, he said, to the hoary interpretation of our fundamental law as a charter of negative liberties, one that says only what the government can't do to you, he lamented, rather than what the government must do on your behalf. This was a reprise of FDR's coveted second Bill of Rights, what Jonah Goldberg calls the apotheosis of liberal aspirations, liberal in the conventional, not the classical sense. The state must provide a new basis for prosperity and property, a job or its equivalent remuneration a decent home, cradle to grave health care, education, and an adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment. This turns the American idea on its head. It need not be belabored here, in this gathering, that government has none of these things to give. To provide for one, it must take from another. It must pick winners and losers and set faction against faction. It must dictate the conditions under which business is done and bubbling uh, social unrest is suppressed. It must be our ruler, not our servant. That is the sordid fortress the social justice architects build for us. It goes without saying that they must bankrupt us in the process. And as the sorry tally that I began this paper with testifies, That part of the project is already well underway. Fairness demands acknowledging that Barack Obama did not start our journey over the economic cliff. Nevertheless, he has accelerated it to warp speed and seems hell-bent on finishing the job. That brings me to the second reason why our prospects have never been dimmer. And finally, back to my springtime scrap over Medicare. It is not just that we are losing our liberty culture. Even as the entitlement state implodes us, even as the remorseless bureaucratic state sucks the life out of entrepreneurship and ingenuity, we do not seem to grasp that there is a hill worth dying on. Having cast Ronald Reagan as the second coming of Woodrow Wilson, my interlocutor, remember he's a Bush official and an avowed conservative, moved in for the kill by invoking, of all people, Edmund Burke. Like it or not, I was chastised, Medicare, even if it is a one-way ticket to national insolvency, is by now, by these alleged Burkean lights, woven into the fabric of American sensibility and American society. To argue for its dissolution at this stage, I was told, was to betray an important conservative disposition. While the left draws the curtain on the American idea, the Republican establishment's default position is that espoused by the liberal journalist Sam Tannenhaus in the death of conservatism, and, it must be noted, expertly refuted by our friend here, Jim Pearson, in the September 2009 edition of the New Criterion. For Tannenhaus, fidelity to the Burkean reverence for order and stability requires conservatives to accept progressive reforms – regardless of how wrongheaded they may be once they become part of the status quo. To do otherwise is to engage in radical revanchism, a very unconservative temperament. I beg to differ with this skewed interpretation of Burke. What is woven into the American fabric and has always been is the notion that a decent society is not indifferent to those who cannot fend for themselves. That this welfare ought to be conveyed by government as the intermediary is an innovation, and perhaps by now it's an ingrained one as well. But that it ought to be done via a monstrous, liberty-devouring edifice is quite something else. To Burke, society was a true intergenerational trust, not in the sense of the entitlement state's pretensions, but a cultural inheritance that enriched a people, bonding them through the generations. The entitlement state to which our ruling class in both political parties would have us surrender is gluttony run amok. It is the impoverishment of future future generations by our insatiable contemporaries. In the course of arguing that the power of bad men is no indifferent thing, Edmund Burke counseled that we should never separate the merits of any political question from the men who are concerned in them since designing men never separate their plans from their interests. If instead of fighting such men, you assist them in their schemes, he said, you will find the pretended good in the end thrown aside and perverted. You will have helped them accomplish their unsavory objectives. Never before in our history has there been a time when the American idea was under assault and good men argued that virtue and the conservative disposition required capitulated. Our prospects are grim if that is not reversed. Thank you.